Okay, now um, this morning's reading, I'll just check with Les, is from Philippians uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through to 13. I think that's correct, Les. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the law that last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. In every and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living with plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Amen. So this is our last talk in our series of talks on the frog and the fish or thinking about the world that we live in or as an analogy, the water that we swim in and how it uh, is all around us and how it shapes us or how we live differently for Christ in the middle of it. So let's pray one more time uh, that God would help us, help us learn and help us understand and, and reflect in our own lives uh, on this question of happiness. Our loving Father, we give you great thanks uh, that we can be here this morning. Lord, that we can uh, cry those tears, but that those tears are of joy as we think about Paul and Karina, and their next move. Lord, we thank you that you're the God of all comfort. Lord, that in your goodness and in your gospel, you lead us toward eternal joy, eternal life. And Lord, we pray that this this time now, considering your word and considering the world in which we live out your word, Lord, help us to be critical of it, Help us to be critical of ourselves. But Lord, comfort us with the knowledge that you're sovereign over it and that you lead us on a path that is to life. So I pray that our time together in your word this morning would take us to those ends. In Jesus' name, amen. What makes you happy? What is it that makes you happy? How do you answer that question? I'm happy when I'm driving and I don't have to stop. In fact, when I leave my house to come to school, I kind of go the long way around because it gives me the best intersections where I'm not likely to have to give way to anybody and I don't have to slow down. And for some reason, that makes me happy. If I don't come to school that way, I arrive frustrated. Luna, my daughter, makes me happy. I don't know whether you saw her while uh, one of the 
Oh, that tear advertisement was on, but she was here twirling around, delighting that she has a dress on and that it fans out when she spins around. She makes me happy. I love my son as well. He's pretty cool, but she's delightful. I'm happy when I'm putting washing on the line at about 10 o'clock at night because I can do it without getting crispy, like with my ranger skin under the sun. It's dark, so I'm not going to get sunburned. Dylan knows what I'm talking about. And I've got my headphones in. I'm listening to um, The Nightlife with Phil Clark on the ABC radio. And I don't care what he's talking about because I'm happy. I'm there. It's cool. It's all happening. And I'm going to go to bed soon. There's moments in life that are just make us happy. There's things that we experience that are happy. Just walking here this morning, I saw one of those, uh, I'm no good with these, but is it a rosella, that multiple coloured birds? Yeah. And it just flew past me and I'm like, look at that bird. It made me happy. It put, it put a smile on my face. Happiness sometimes comes in those small moments. And then happiness comes in those big euphoric moments as well. Yesterday, for some of us, we were down at a wedding, a big day celebrating the love between two people. This is a photo of the first time I went to see the band U2 in concert. This is at, uh, sorry? Yeah, I wasn't even married then. Tara and I uh, went together, but we weren't married at this stage. Yeah, I was pretty young. I, I would have been 20 in that photo. So that's 13 years ago, gee. Um, I've been with some of you, but this was a concert before that. And I'd, I'd been into U2 since the end of high school. They were a bit, they were pretty old by then, like, but for, I was really into music and I just, something about their music just clicked with me. And we got in, we lined up really early and we got an awesome spot. You can't tell from that photo, but either side of me, closer than the walls of this room, were more stages that came right out and we were right in the thick of their performance. It was an awesome performance, but the feeling of happiness in, in this moment was for about the first four or five songs, I literally bawled, like I was crying with, with just this overcome emotion. For, it was sobbing, that's what I've written here, I sobbed. <laughs> And I was just listening to this music that had, had meant so much to me that, um, and being plowed, played so loudly and dynamically. It was amazing. See, happiness is such a significant human emotion that we actually try to make each other happy. We crack a joke. We give a gift to put a smile on someone's face. Maybe we work hard at something for someone and we do it because we wanted to make them happy. God has created us in a way that is capable, that we're capable of experiencing these intense moments of happiness. What makes you happy? Finish this sentence. I will be happy when? Maybe given the season that we're in, it'll be when everyone arrives home for Christmas or New Year's or when I get to my family that I'm going to go visit. Maybe we answer that question with the answer, when that, that money comes in that I'm waiting for, that bonus or that payment or something like that. 
Maybe it's when your kids arrive home from school or from being away somewhere. Maybe it's when your kids are finally asleep and you don't have to think about what they're doing anymore. Or maybe when you're finally on holidays. See, most of us have an answer to this question. Probably didn't take you that long to think of a way to finish that sentence. I will be happy when. This actually brings us closer to the water that we swim in, to the world that we live in. I will be happy when is actually a way of thinking about happiness that's pretty dominant in our culture. And that's because happiness in a broken and fallen world isn't what it could be or what it should be. Because we acknowledge that there's moments where we're just not happy. That happy moment can be so fleeting I walked here and I saw that rosella, but it didn't take away my headache or my tiredness or my, uh, you know, feeling overloaded with what I had to do this morning when I arrived here. It can be fleeting. Things that should make us happy can frequently disappoint us. We can experience periods of depression in our life. Happiness is broken because sometimes the things that that are making us happy are actually evil, they're sinful. And we're delighting in something that is not good. We sometimes believe that the things that are described as sinful and evil are the things that are going to make us happy and we long after those. And really, in our society, we believe that personal happiness is the most important thing. In fact, we put, give it a place that, that takes it above what is right and wrong. Is it wrong? Well, maybe. Does it make me happy? Yeah, we'll, we'll go for it. That's the message that's out there in their world. It's the water that we swim in. Happiness is a major ideal that our society ascribes to. Now, I can't speak to every area that I've just highlighted there. But what makes you happy? I just want to highlight a few of them this morning. See, what makes you happy is a question that modern Australia thrives on. Once upon a time, Australians seemed to realise, like there was a narrative in our culture that, that said we are the lucky country, that we are the ones living the dream. And over the past few weeks, we've spoken about the water that we swim in. We've spoken about stuff, about work, about technology, and these different things. And what I want to take us to today is a realisation that our modern society is based on a few things. Consumerism, mass media, and individualism. Now, they're big words, but I'll just give uh, simple definitions. Consumerism... Just acquiring more stuff, getting more and more. Mass media, all that connectedness and being advertised to constantly. And individualism, that each person is at the centre of their own universe. And because of those things, you're actually advertised to, I'm advertised to, in a way that, that makes me dissatisfied 
with my life, with different aspects of my life. Basically, we're told that whatever our lives are like, they can be better. That's a pretty simple formula. If you, if you make someone feel dissatisfied, then you can sell them the product that's going to satisfy. For example, on one hand, we know that chocolate is unhealthy. Sorry to break it to you. It's delicious. We eat too much of it. We, we're in a society that is under a, an obesity epidemic, and then Cadbury doesn't sell us chocolate just as chocolate. It sells us happiness. That's smattered into a lot of their marketing campaigns. It's almost like our society has, has moved to a point where we're made to believe that we're like our own little stars in our own little Disney movie. Maybe we're the princess with the dream life. Maybe our lives are like the rags to riches story. Maybe we're made to believe that we're an adventure, an adventurer who will travel the world and conquer it. And over the time, these different ideas get into our psyche. Our minds become generally dissatisfied with most things we have or do because we're striving toward these things. Back in university, I, when, as I studied music in, a, in an arts degree, I began to like Apple computers. And when I was doing a music degree 12 years ago, they were by far the superior computer and, and product for creative, creativity, for doing anything creative. That's what you needed. That's what the university was filled with, these machines. And since then, over these 12 years, I've purchased an Apple iMac computer and then two Apple MacBook Pros and an iPod Touch and now five iPhones and two iPads. Do I have sucker on my forehead? Like, they have got me, haven't they? Now, that's not just me. That's between Tara and I. So, so uh, some of those phones are Tara's phones and, and likewise. But it's a lot of technology. And with every single piece of Apple technology, I've reached a point where I'm completely underwhelmed with what it can do. I even get frustrated with it. A few months ago, Apple launched its updated iPhone. It's my, you might have that one in your pocket right now. But I updated, what, in March, six months too early because I don't have the new one. It gets into your head. It's a good way to sell stuff and a good way to make money, and it happens all around us. And if we're kept dissatisfied enough with what, with what we have, then companies can keep selling stuff to us. All sorts of stuff are sold to us. Products, looks, experiences. Why can they be sold to us? It's because we're in a broken world. It's because in reality, in this world, very little ever fulfills us. We have moments of happiness, and then we're back to reality. Maybe we experience happiness for a fleeting moment when we have a great dinner, or we're with our family, or we, we have an exciting holiday. Maybe it comes when we're falling in love, or when a baby's born into our family. 
But those moments come and they soon depart. And the reality of life is back and we have to work and work hard and that's frustrated. We have to do the mundane things. We've got to take the rubbish out. I mean, that's just the reality of life. And not only that, happiness is often not predictable. The happy experience repeated might not make us as happy the second time around. The second time I went to a U2 concert, it was okay. It was good to be there with mates that I wasn't there with the first time, but happiness, in fact, often comes when we're not even looking for it. And I think it's gone to a whole other level in our society where we tend to believe that we actually have a right to be happy all the time. If it's not making us happy, then we just shouldn't do it. Now, you can't live that philosophy out. It does not make me particularly happy to have to walk all the way down the stairs with my rubbish and put it in the bin, but I can't leave it in my house. It will, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a broken idea that we have to be happy all the time. If we have a chance to be happy, we're told, we need to go at that. We're not being true to ourselves if we don't. We had some close friends whose marriage hit the rocks. And so they separated. And as one of them was considering another relationship, even though they believe, I believe they knew the betrayal and hurt it would cause, that opportunity to be happy was just too important for them to pass up. It's the climate that we live in. Personal happiness is the ultimate measure of whether something is morally justifiable in 2018. And if it's not expressed in this way, I actually believe it's, it's in, expressed to us in the negative. It's not always a question, does this make someone happy? But the question, does this cause psychological harm? If such and such a topic is spoken about in the media, it might upset a group of people, so we better not talk about it, or we better... You know, we, we've, we've got to change our laws to suit that. We don't want to upset people. In scripture classes, the, the attack has been coming on scripture classes, the work that I do for, um, I've been teaching 10 years this year for at least seven of them. There's been quite vehement attacks through that time. And they talk about if kids are told in class that, that they um, are are sinful and deserve God's judgment in a public school, that's just not okay. It will cause them psychological harm. Even Victoria dumped scripture program because it causes too much harm to the kids to line up outside the classroom and some of them go off to non-scripture and some go to scripture because it might make them unhappy. It's craziness, isn't it? If a person isn't able to whatever miss out on happiness, then we've made it an ultimate thing. What has happened is we've taken this idea of happiness, which is a good gift from God. God has created a world that is full of things that are there to make us happy. And we've taken that thing like everything and made it an ultimate thing. 
put it in the place of God and it all goes sour. It all goes wrong. I, I did the talk at the start of this series on work and we spent a fair bit of time in Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes, right in chapter 3, there's a poem. It's the time for everything one. You're not really meant to be able to read that. But in Ecclesiastes 3, it talks about the different times in life. And after he's talked about that, he summarizes with these words. He, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. So this verse teaches us that God, in setting the patterns that we experience in life, the rhythms and seasons, builds in us desires for that happiness. And yet it also tells us that true happiness or or deep joy in our soul is only found in our relationship with God. For God, as this passage says, to have set eternity in our hearts means that we will only experience fulfillment as it is set out in God's eternal plans. Plans for you, for the world, and for all people. It's that God-shaped whole idea that inside each of us there is a spot that only God can fill. And it flows over into the rest of our life. The happy moments that we've been talking about so far are not the same as the deep joy that God ultimately created for us to experience. And it's the way that God created you, and it's in Christ what he redeemed you to. In forgiving you and bringing you back into relationship with him, he redeems you to a joy a joy in him. While those happy moments exist, there's actually no promise that they will be the norm. But, as we read in Philippians 4, there is a command, and it's to rejoice. And it's to rejoice always. Because of what God has done and what God has promised to do, we have a completely different way to see happiness. And so what I want to quickly unpack as I finish up this talk is the ideas that are in this passage. The ideas of hope, the ideas of joy, and then of contentment. Because I believe that not only are these things the antidote to the messages and beliefs of our culture, but they're the real riches that come to us from having Jesus in our life. Now when we see Paul uh, saying rejoice, in this passage, and throughout the whole book of Philippians, he's taking us to that deeper theme within the Bible of joy. While happiness, like we said, is something that comes and goes in and out of season, joy is that deeper emotion or that that state that comes from our relationship with Jesus. Jesus, in dying on the cross, has literally taken our sin and died for it. And as we come to believe that, No more are we stuck in the shame of our sin, but we know his deep love for us. 
And that's what joy is centered in. That knowledge that, that we have been redeemed, that we have been made new. Jesus promised that this is what would happen. Just prior to his death, in John chapter 16, there's a whole lot that Jesus says to his disciples. This is the, in the days before he's about to die. And picking up in verse 20, Jesus makes this, this statement to his disciples about what's coming ahead of them. He says this, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices over his crucifixion. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when a baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In the disciples' life, spending their time with Jesus, but before he's gone to the cross and paid the penalty for their sin, he looks forward to what they will experience as they come to realize the fullness that we know of what Jesus has done. The grief of Jesus dying and and the confusion for the disciples wouldn't compare, wouldn't even come close with the joy that they would know because of his death, because of what he achieves for them in it. So with the command that Paul gives us to rejoice in the Lord always in mind, have a look at what Paul says about the hope that he gives as the reason for us to rejoice. At the end of verse 5, Paul reminds the Philippians that the Lord is near. Because of the gospel, because they've been made right with God, the Philippians have been brought into relationship with God. God the good father. God the one who cares deeply for his people. God is near to you. And this is true in good situations or in bad. Paul is literally writing this from a jail cell. In chapter 1 of Philippians, he talks about how he is in chains for Christ. And this is not the only place in the book that he talks about rejoicing. The whole way through, he's talking about how he's rejoicing, he's full of joy, he's rejoicing, he's rejoicing, as he's sitting there locked up in a jail cell, not even sure if he's going to be released or be executed. In chapter 1, he famously says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Imagine yourself in 2018 being hauled out today for being at church and being locked up for being a Christian. Would you be sitting there rejoicing? Would you be capable of remaining faithful to Jesus? Would you stick with Jesus? What Paul shows us here is that despite his circumstances, What he gains from knowing Jesus completely outweighs any disappointment that he is experiencing or can ever experience. So rich is what Jesus gives to us. 
Often as you consider this kind of thing as Christians, we will either doubt that Jesus is true or we might feel as Christians that we're failures. There is no doubt that Paul sets a pretty high bar as an example here. There have definitely been seasons in my own life where I've doubted, where I've doubted that it's worth following. There's been seasons where I've felt like a failure. But Jesus is who he says to rejoice in. Jesus is who he says knowing allows him to overcome doubts, to overcome fears, and to overcome troubles. For him to not fear death speaks of the real hope that he has found in Jesus. When our faith is in Jesus, he is near to us. He is leading and guiding us. His very own spirit is living in us and through us. Verse 6 begins with the command, do not be anxious. It's a pretty massive thing to say. It's it's a word that we hear a lot of lately. Uh, Depression and anxiety are an increasingly common illness in our in our society. And yet again, he's bold to say something like this because of Jesus. Because the riches of what we have in relationship with Jesus can overcome that. It's so true that Jesus is good and that he is in control that our having a relationship with Jesus gives us a reason to not be anxious. In fact, because of Jesus, he goes on to say that we can pray about everything. Verse 7 tells us that his peace, his very own peace, will guard us. It will protect us. The hope of a relationship with Jesus is bigger than life and death itself. It means that we can truly know peace. Paul then tells us that we've got to keep thinking about these things. Have a look at verse 8 with me. Is it on the screen? Now you can. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, then think about such things. Every time Paul there says whatever, he's ultimately, the answer ultimately is Jesus. Jesus is true. Jesus is noble. Jesus is lovely. Jesus is admirable. And we need to think about these things rather than thinking about what is going to make us happy. With relationship with Jesus, we have the deepest source of joy that we can ever know. It's the joy that we were created to know. Think about these things. We need to think about these things rather than thinking about what's going to make me happy. Thinking about what stuff's going to make me happy or the circumstances that might make me happy. Or the conditions that are going to bring me happiness. There's heaps of stuff that tries to get our attention. 
think about these things? How often do you actually intentionally focus on things that are true and lovely and excellent and pure? If you're anything like me, I know that I can spend heaps of time thinking about those other things, the stuff that I want or the circumstances that I think will make life that little bit better. Focusing on the things that Paul says here leads us to the rejoicing in Jesus. It leads us back to what he has done for us. The last part of what we had read then offers us what I think is really a good mindset to maintain the joy that we find in Jesus in the midst of the world that we live in. In verses 10 through to 13, Paul is talking about some kind of support that he has received because of the Philippian church. And in discussing this, he shares how he's learned contentment. Because joy is found in our relationship with Jesus, and because Jesus has already saved us, it's done, like on the cross, he knows that his joy cannot be taken from him. No circumstance that he will find himself in can change that. He's learned to be content whatever the circumstance. He says it in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says in many situations he's found himself in, in different circumstances, but he's learned contentment he tells us in verse 13 i can do all things through him who strengthens me it's jesus that gives him that contentment it's knowing that the sovereign god of the universe is the means by which he will live and that lets him be content paul knows deep joy He knows hopeful peace because he has placed his faith in the reality of the risen Jesus. Are you seeing contentment in your life, in your circumstances? Are you seeing contentment through your faith in Jesus? It's actually not that hard to work out. If you are feeling uncontent, then chances are you're not focused on your faith in Jesus. It's the antidote to the fleeting happiness that our world obsesses with. Our culture, like I've said, takes happiness, which is this good gift from God, and makes it an ultimate thing. The gospel introduces us to a deeper joy that can't be taken away by any circumstances. And so to experience this deeper joy, we need to, like Paul shows us here, fall into circumstances. Rather than just try to avoid things that potentially make us uncomfortable. We need to take steps of faith that extend and that prove our trust in God. Rather than shy away into our own comforts and into our personal happiness. The pursuit of her personal happiness 
is hollow. It's fleeting. It disappears. And it itself can even be depressing. And it's because it's trying to constantly fill that hole that is only able to be fulfilled by God as we can know him in Jesus. It's a resurrection-shaped hole that's filled with the hope of a risen saviour. If you're sitting here this morning and you're deeply unhappy, don't give up on Jesus. Because he is the source of joy that is deeper and more real than your pain. If you are constantly pulled toward this and that by looking for things that you think will bring you happiness, then put Jesus at the center of your vision. Use him as your measure. Remember, the problem with where our society and our world and our culture is with happiness is it teaches us that we control our lives. And so we somehow control our happiness. We don't control that much of our circumstances at all. We don't control where, we, where we're born or die. We don't control what kind of world we're b- born into, what part of the world we'll live in. We don't control what people may or may not say to us, the times they may or may not include us. Life as a Christian acknowledges this with a deep trust that God does control stuff and that he is good and that he is working good for us in all circumstances. We are encouraged because of this toward contentment toward hope and toward joy. And striving to create our own happiness will most likely make us unhappy sooner or later. And it ultimately will be empty of hope and of joy. Now I've got to confess that I've actually found this really difficult to write, to prepare to share this this morning. Probably come across in how I've delivered parts of it. And it had me thinking, am I okay? Like I have been struggling with that question as, I, as I'm struggling to, to think through this and to write this. I've been questioning, am I okay? Am I, you know, am I with it or am I just think I am and tricking myself or deceiving myself? No. Paul and Karina have shared their news today and that's been weighing on me for some for a bit of time i haven't known the whole time but and and that is sorrow mixed with joy there is deep sadness that comes with that and grieving but there's joy for me personally september through to november that that idea that we are not in control of in our lives has been has been proved to me through a whole bunch of different circumstances that's been going on. It's been a period of, of things crumbling around, around us and our family. And it's been a testing time to, to really test that, that trust in God and that He is what's worth striving toward. Because of 
the joy of knowing him and, and delighting in him and the relationship that he, that he, the real life that he brings us into. And right at the end of the week, I realised why this is so hard to try to preach about, to talk about, because Peter tells us, he talks about the hope that we, we're given in Christ, the mercy that he's shown us, the new birth and a, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as he goes on and talks about this, he talks about the inheritance, the, the reality of heaven, the future that awaits us. And he tells us in this, you greatly rejoice. In, in living out the gospel, you will greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've suffered grief of all kinds of trials. And these come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then he says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And I thought, no wonder I can't explain it because it's unexplainable. The depth of, of having the, the truth of Jesus worked out in your life is a joy to be experienced, not to be explained. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Can I encourage you in your, work in Je- in your walk with Jesus to just sink further into Jesus? to build up trust, to fall into those circumstances and find the joy that comes through knowing him. For you are receiving the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray to that end. Our loving Father, we, we've got a whole lot that I've just said to process and to think about. We've got a world that that pulls us this way and that to its own ends. But in your Son, we have redemption into a relationship with you. And that relationship with you, you've promised, gives us a reason to rejoice. And it fills us with a joy that we can't even explain, that even in your own word, it can't be put into words. And so, Lord, my prayer now is that that we would rejoice and that we would live the way that Paul talks about, looking with the attitude that we want to rejoice and that we would remember that you are near to us, that you do control our circumstances and that you are good and that you work them together for good. And, Lord, that you invite us to focus our life's attention onto you. Lord, I pray that you might give us the willingness to do that, the boldness to do that, when it means letting go of things, even things that we've held on to for large parts of our life, for the sake of, of experiencing that joy and growing deeper into relationship with you. And Lord, as we know the joy that you give us, Lord, Teach us more and more just how good you are. Grow our trust through that. Lord, grow our faith. 
grow our belief in you and increase our joy because it brings you glory as our lives are shaped in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.